Beloved congregation of the Lord, the text we'll particularly be focusing on is in Second Peter chapter 2, and that is in verse 6, but as it comes in a larger sentence, I'd like to begin reading in verse 4. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example unto you that after should live, to those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just law, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their ungodly deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Well, it is a dark anniversary here in Canada, for it marks the one-year anniversary since Bill C-4 received royal approval and passed into law through our criminal code. You see, Bill C-4 is sometimes termed the anti-conversion therapy bill, but perhaps more accurately might be called the anti-conversion bill. Now, this bill uh, lays out some uh, serious violations that they would seek to criminalize in our land of uh, speaking about matters of sexuality, and in particular, seeking to cause people to change their behaviors and beliefs about sexuality. Let me read you something from the preamble of that legislation. Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexual, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. And then it proceeds in the broadest possible terms to penalize any form of communication that would seek to propagate such beliefs. And so let's not miss the the core issue here. It is calling all beliefs that would condemn homosexuality and transgenderism as based upon harmful myths. And so in that way you see the criminal code of our land calls the sacred scriptures of the living God a myth. Well, not to be forgotten is that this bill, when it was voted upon, was passed without debate 
or opposition. It was passed unanimously with the support of every political party. And so Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party supported it, and Jagmeet Singh and the New Democratic Party supported it, and Pierre Polyev, the current leader of the Conservative Party, together with the leadership of the Conservative Party, supported it, and there was no one even from that party who opposed it. And so one of the things we ought to understand about this is that that reflects the vast majority of the voting public. All of their representatives did not see fit to oppose this legislation. And so we ought to make no mistake about it. We live under a government which has declared war on the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. To believe what the criminal code says and to obey the criminal code in this way, to speak lies about sexuality, that is, in effect, to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. First John chapter 2, verse 22, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Of course, this did not come out of nowhere. Indeed, it's the culmination of generations in which the laws of our land have increasingly been hostile to biblical morality, in which the state, rather rather than being subject to God and to his law, has elevated itself as a kind of God or a kind of Christ, if you like, an antichrist government seeking to call evil good and to good and good evil to make itself the standard of morality. And so we ought to be even more clear and say that the sermon in which I'm about to preach is an illegal act punishable by years in prison in the criminal code. And so we ought to ask that question. Is it, is it worth it to continue to speak about these things? Is perhaps the cost too high? Might it be better or preferable for us, if not to deny the scriptures, simply to mute our proclamation, to whisper about some of the things that are shouted about in the sacred text? Of course, it's no option for the faithful. We're precisely at one point the word of God and the truth of Jesus Christ and his lordship are under attack. Then the faithful will say that we must stand behind the whole counsel of God and speak truly about these things. And so... Whatever may come, either this Lord's Day or any Lord's Day to come, we must understand what the scriptures speak about these things. Increasingly, it appears our society is taking on the character of that story we read in the book of Genesis, of those final moments in the city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah. 
in which perversion and immorality was so gross and terrible before the sight of God that judgment was coming. We may be frightened by persecution. We may be concerned about consequences in our social lives or business lives or personal freedoms. But what the scriptures would teach us to care about more than anything is the coming judgment of God and what that means for the churches in this land. So I'd like to especially focus on verse 6, which I'll read again of Second Peter chapter 2. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto them that after should live ungodly. Well, if ever there was a time or a people that needed instruction from the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, surely it is our nation at this time. If ever there was an ungodly nation that needed to hear the truth of what God says about these things, then surely it is our land of Canada. With the Lord's help, I'd like to consider lessons from Sodom and Gomorrah. Lessons from Sodom and Gomorrah. And with that, I'd like to consider really two kinds of lessons, those which concern God's wrath and those which concern God's mercy. So first, we'll look at God's wrath And then we will consider God's mercy. Well, if you were here for our New Year's Eve sermon and service, you'll remember we also referred to this chapter. And at that point, we spoke about how this is a very clear warning against false Christians, whether they be teachers or preachers in the church who are spreading false doctrine or those who follow that false doctrine as members of the church, or otherwise those who have no saving faith or true godliness of heart in them and thereby show themselves to be false Christians. There is a terrible warning here and a warning that the church of all times must take heart, take to mind and take to heart. And you see that as Peter is seeking to raise the warning cry against the creeping apostasy that threatened the churches of his own day, he uses example after example from biblical and sacred history to make his point. He speaks in verse 4 there about the fall of the devil and his angels being cast down and reserved unto judgment in those chains of darkness, having rejected and defied the Lord of heaven and earth, they are now consigned unto eternal damnation. He speaks also in verse 5 there of Noah, speaking of him as one of those eight individuals who is saved from those days of the flood. An interesting fact, he was a preacher of righteousness, did not just build that ark, but also warned and rebuked the ungodly of his own day and called them unto repentance. And yet the great majority, of course, destroyed. And then he comes to this example of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
God, we are told, turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. You see, what happened in that history is often cited in the scripture as one of the clearest examples of God's judgment. As the judgment, you could say, that especially sets forth the wrath and hatred of God against sin. Another example like our text is found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 29. And there the the warning especially goes to the people of God that you will be like Sodom and Gomorrah if you turn away from the law and covenant of God. So it's one of many examples that's given. And so we're invited to reflect upon that episode in history in Genesis 19. What is it that we can learn? What is it that is set forth here for our instruction in all times and in all places, and in particular times of evil and apostasy? Well, perhaps you know, children, that Lot was Abraham's nephew. He was part of Abraham's family, and they left their home in Ur of the Chaldees in order to follow the Lord together, and they helped one another and encouraged one another for a time until their servants began to fight. And so what they decided was that they would separate. They would take different portions of land there in the land of Canaan. And what would happen is Moses would move his tents more towards the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, indeed, it was a lush and a vibrant part of the world, we are told. It was blessed with plenty and prosperity, much like our own Western society, blessed with riches beyond compare, food on the shelves of grocery stores, safe shelter, much health care, much provision, much wealth compared to many other societies. And yet what you see is that there was a wickedness and a darkness in that part of the world. It's illustrated in a vivid way in Second Peter chapter 2 as he reflects upon Lot and as he became more and more enmeshed in that society, as he settled down and, and stayed there with his family. It says in verse 6, Lot vexed, verse 7, excuse me, Lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. An unlawful society, an ungodly society, a society that did not fear God, characterized by their terrible wickedness and evil. And so seeing what they did to their bodies, seeing what they did to their own families, their own children, their own fellow citizens. When Lot sees two travelers coming into the city one day, he doesn't want them to stay out into the street. 
not knowing who they are, that they are, in fact, angels sent by God. He pleads with them to come and stay at his home, not to stay in the street, knowing the kind of people that they would encounter. And so he prevails upon them and he brings them into his own home, around his his own family, desiring to protect these strangers whom he doesn't even know, exercising true hospitality. It's interesting that Peter draws out that he is just Lot, just Lot. You know, we look at this episode and we see much that's wrong about about Lot. And if you look at the whole picture of his life, he's certainly not the strongest believer or the most godly. But we're reminded of that truth of the gospel, aren't we? The just shall live by faith. Whatever imperfection may have been in Lot's life, he was a believer in the righteousness of faith, the covenant of grace, trusting in the mercy of God and the promised mediator. He was reconciled unto his God and Father, and he sought to live godly. And yet, on that night, it seemed as though everything was going wrong. It seemed as though standing for what was right was going to bring down everything upon him. In Genesis chapter 19 and verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men? which came in to thee this night. Bring them out unto us that we may know them. So you see here that the language is parallel to, for example, in the book of Genesis earlier on, it said that Adam knew his wife and she conceived, speaking of the sexual act. But here you have this great mob outside and they are desiring not sexual intimacy according to God's law and standard, but they wish to rape and abuse these strangers. So insatiable is their lust and perversion. And Lot, well, he doesn't exactly commend himself that honorably here, does he? He actually offers his own his own daughters to be taken in their place, perhaps showing at least some courage in protecting these strangers and perhaps this is more of a diversion than it is an actual offer. Maybe he's just biding time in order to make his escape. Of course, it's also quite probable that he is so terrified that he is acting irrationally and with great cowardice and endangering his own family. So there you have in verse 9 of of Genesis 19. And they said, Stand back. And these are the angels speaking. And, said, and they said again, This one fellow came into Sodom, and he will, he will needs be an, a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with him? And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. Isn't it interesting, such a feeble and a 
tiny resistance, you could say, into these perverted individuals, and yet what is their line? You are being judgmental of us. That's how it is, of course, with our own society today as well. It doesn't matter how meekly, how kindly, how gently you would stand for the truth of scriptures. It does not matter how you would plead for the souls of people and point out the logic and the harmony and the unity of the word of God increasingly as we see this nation being given over to a reprobate mind. The word comes through loud and clear. You are being judgmental. Even while we see perversion increasing. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great. So that they wearied themselves to find the door. A pitiful scene. The angels come out, they strike these men with blindness, but so insatiable is their loss that they're groping, groping at the door. An incredible display of the depravity that we see. Of course, you read further on, and in that story, it talks about the terrible end of that city. In verse 23, the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar, that city which... The angels bring him to for refuge. They take him. They take his wife. They take his daughters, as many as would come with law. And they flee out of that city. In verse 24, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities that were grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And you see Abraham in verse 27. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Stand with Abraham, look out on the skyline, see that terrible billow of smoke rising into the sky, see the fire and the brimstone that have incinerated that once great city. Take it in, take it all in. And what have we to say about this, but that it is a revelation of the wrath of God against sin. The other day I was standing with a number of Christians outside a library. It was a protest organized by a number of, of Christians and churches standing against what's called Drag Queen Story Hour. The idea there is in order to desensitize and to groom children towards a life of sexual immorality, you have men dressing and sexually provocative and gender-inappropriate clothing in order to basically deface and, and to destroy the image of God in man and to bring children into this way of life. And so you have Christians standing out, singing psalms, holding signs, behaving respectfully, and a great crowd of these individuals who are coming out to support these practices. 
And my man comes up to me and says, you know what I hate more than anything? It is Christians who take the name of Christ out of Christianity. And I said, well, amen, I can get behind that. And then he, he said further, well, don't you understand that Jesus taught of love? He taught of universal love. And I said, well, did he not also preach of hell? Did not he say, fear, him, fear not them which can destroy the body, but fear him who is able to cast both body and soul into hell? Do you not have a place for the wrath and for the justice of God. And he refused to hear and he stormed away in anger. And is this not the society we live in? Yes, there is a form of Christianity which will be tolerated, but certainly not one that would hold for this as an example of God's great majesty, goodness, and holiness, his wrath against sin. In Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Mark 9, verse 47, And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, for it is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It's interesting that in Jude chapter 1, verse 6, which is sort of a parallel text to what we see in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6, you see that the... Um, the vengeance of eternal fire is spoken of as that which was visited on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the idea there is that fire is really a symbol of the eternal fires of hell, which burn against all the damned, tormenting them day and night and now in soul and in the world to come after the resurrection in body and soul with conscious torments forever. And such things would not be in the Bible congregation if they were not true and if they were not important and if they were not essential to understanding the true nature of sin and the true hatred of God against all sin. Let us never mute our declaration of the absolute holiness of God much better, much better to cling to everything in the scripture, even those things that are hard sayings, even those things that militate against our own flesh and our own pride, than to construct a false god of our own making, one to accommodate unto the spirit of the age and to the anti-Christ agenda of the enemies of God. There's, of course, this lesson we ought to bring home, and that is God's wrath against the particular sin that is illustrated in that story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is, of course, from this story that we understand the word sodomy. We understand the word sodomite as one who partakes of the sin of sodomy. And there you have what is ultimately 
revelation of the terrible sin of homosexuality. In Jude chapter 1, verse 6, the apostle reflects upon this episode and says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So two things spoken of the kind of sexual immorality that was in Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, fornication, but also going after strange flesh. An expression for unnatural, deviant, perverse sexual acts that even nature itself teaches us are wrong. In this respect, the same author of Genesis, the human author Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, recording these things, also reveals what the law of God says about that homosexual sexual act between men in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Neither shalt thou lie with any beasts to defile themselves therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you, and the land is defiled. Therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Now, a couple of things to note there. You'll notice that the law of God deals with homosexuality, lying with a man as with womankind, exchanging the use of the woman for the use of the man in the bed as abomination. And abomination, the same category as bestiality of the sexual act with an animal. And you'll notice that it certainly can't be limited to the special ceremonial laws given to Israel in that time. For God especially says in that verse that it was for these abominations that God's wrath is upon the nations that you are driving out, the Canaanites and the Amorites and so forth. The pagan nations are going to be judged by the law of God and the wrath of God for these very same sins. Even, of course, in the law of God, there is prescription for the death penalty for those who engage in this sexual act of homosexual sodomy. In Leviticus 19, verse 13, If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And it's interesting that that serious view of homosexuality is not only a terrible sin against the law of God with terrible spiritual consequences, but as an attack upon society itself that requires civil penalty, while well, it was also the view of our Reformed Fathers. Zacharias or Sinus, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, echoes somewhat of the principle of the law of God in his commentary on the seventh commandment, saying, quote, the magistrate should punish those these heinous sins and abominable transgressions with extraordinary punishments.
So we see that this is something which God's wrath is particularly against. It is indeed the case that every sin, the least sin, the least thought of sin, well, if it is against a holy God, it warrants eternity in hell. However, we must never fall into the danger of saying that all sins are equal, as though all sins are the same. Indeed, we must say that some sins are more serious than others, and those sins which are against nature are a particularly heinous and wicked kind of sin, which God particularly abominates. And so the question becomes, do you believe that? Do you believe it not only when you're in a church building, where I would imagine no one is going to disagree with the things I've said, but can you still believe that when you're surrounded by people who think differently? You know, even... In this chapter of Second Peter, the context, of course, is false teaching within the church. Church leaders corrupting the standard of holiness and repentance in order to make room for various forms of immorality. The question becomes, do you know your Bible well enough? Do you believe your Bible, Bible firmly enough that even if false teachers should teach you something otherwise, that homosexuality is not a sin, there is something that is in fact good about homosexuality, that you will still be able to explain clearly what the Bible says about that. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, for this cause God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. These things are found throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. And the reality becomes this. If this is something which God's wrath burns against, if God has placed his judgment upon those who partake of such sins, then we must not compromise the truth, lest we ourselves partake of the abominations which are spoken of here, and we compromise our own integrity before the sight of God as the Lord's people. Now, I want to speak in the second place not only about lessons concerning God's wrath, but also God's mercy. And, of course, this is highlighted also in Peter's words. The verse that we're especially considering in verse 6, it's actually setting you up for a larger conclusion. It uses these examples of the angels and Noah and then Lot. And the conclusion is all really summed up in that statement in verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. There you have, indeed, there is judgment, there is punishment, there is, indeed, the reprobate reserved to the day of judgment being passed over by God in their unbelief and wickedness to be display of his wrath for eternity. But the emphasis is also this. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. 
And that as well is one of the uses of Sodom and Gomorrah throughout the scriptures. It's referred to again and again. Yes, the display of God's wrath, but also of his mercy, sparing Lot, sparing his daughters from that terrible calamity. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, where the prophet is speaking in days of apostasy of his own, he yet has reason to extol the Lord's mercy, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. The reality spoken of here is not that those who are redeemed and saved by God's grace put themselves on another moral plane as though we are better than the ones who march in pride parades or who distort the truth of God. No, left unto ourselves, we would do as many or worse things uh, ourselves. But the emphasis is, of course, in God's grace, redeeming his elect remnant from the darkness and judgment of the broader population. The truth here is that there is forgiveness with God and mercy with God against even the chief and worst of sinners. Throughout these epistles in the New Testament, you have various words of repentance spoken to those in the Gentile nations, those for whom they had no concept of of uh, the law of God when it comes to sexual ethics. You have w- many perverse practices utterly normalized. And there you have the early Christians speaking out against those wicked practices in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. The Lord, he does separate us from this ungodly and unclean world. There will be one here who says, I am tempted to the sin of homosexuality. If there would be one here who says, I have even engaged in the sin of homosexuality, I would say unto you, there is good news, sinner. Good news for me and good news for you and for the very chief of sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save that which is lost. Look at Lot and his family in that city of destruction, about to be consumed in the wrathful fire falling upon the ungodly. And what is it that the Lord does? He sends those angels particularly to care for his own. In a way, sort of that fulfillment of that prayer of intercession which Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. Praying, Lord, if there be but 50 people in that City who have not partaken of those sins, will you spare that city? Will you not spare the godly from the unrighteous, the fate of the unrighteous? And God says, Yes, even for 50, even for 20, even for 10, I would spare that city. Consider that this man, Lot, 
Lot who displayed cowardice, who displayed compromise. Yet what is it that's held forth in this chapter? He is just Lot. He is justified by faith. Looked at upon, not according to his sins, but according to the righteousness of Christ. And what is held forth are only those things that are commended by Peter. He was vexed. He was troubled in his soul at the life or conversation of the wicked. He was, it says in verse 8, in seeing and hearing vex his righteous soul from day to day with their ungodly deeds. Perhaps some of you can relate to that. You see so much evil, so much perversion, so much injustice, so much darkness, and sometimes the weight and burden of that is just too great. Sometimes you see these things and it is enough to drive you to despair because you, it seems as though God is withdrawing his presence. But let me tell you something. Do not once try to just soften the burden of that. Do not once try to just ease your conscience by saying these things are just not so bad. Far better, congregation, to take that as a precious grace from the Lord. He is causing you to be burdened, not only by your own sins, but by others. And he is weakening your love for this world. And he is seeking to redeem you unto himself unto a place wherein no unclean thing dwells. The word of God yet goes forth today. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 to 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy Upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. As in those times where the wrath and judgment of God is revealed against societies, that the mercy of God rescuing sinners as brands from the burning is especially held forth and exemplified. These things, congregation, ought to cause us to have joy in our hearts, knowing that the Lord has called us unto such a time as this, where we have the distinct privilege of standing for the truth of both the law of God and the gospel of God for sinners. Repent ye and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand, we must say. We must not come into these battles with pragmatic arguments or secular arguments or popular arguments. No, we tear down strongholds with the word of the living God. We stand upon the rock of ages and we take the truth once for all delivered unto the saints. And we say, here we stand. We can do no other. I'd like to leave you with a thought that occurred to me in preparing of this message. And that is that sometimes people speak about the problem of homophobia, about the fear of homosexuals as a distinct problem among Christians. And the implication, of course, is that the only reason anyone would object to such practices or hold to the truth of Scripture is because of irrational mental illness. And so we, of course, reject the term and reject the accusation and we cast it back upon those who suppress the truth of unrighteousness and call them unto repentance. 
But let us take that word and thought for a moment. Homophobia, the fear of homosexuals. In another sense, is it perhaps not true that it is the case? I remember one time I was handing out tracts with a godly brother, and we um, were talking to different people, and all of a sudden there a, a couple walked past two men holding hands, and the person I was with, we both refrained from speaking to them. We'd rather talk to Muslims or talk to others. And why? Well, because we know there's going to be a fight. We know there's going to be a confrontation. Not that we would be unkind or unloving, but that we would speak the truth. And with that comes the cost. I think we are afraid often of losing the approval of the world and becoming uncomfortable by having to speak to such people. I'm reminded of what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Congregation, we need to remember that but for the grace of God, there go we. If It is true that we have any acquaintance with our own sin, with our own sinful desires and longings. We know that if not for the restraining hand of God upon us, there is no sin that we are not capable of. That reason, if we have any acquaintance with the love of God and the love of Christ directed towards us in the gospel, then we must love others enough to tell them the truth. And we must love them enough to be willing to behave.